This episode of Mossback is presented by the Port of Seattle. It's quiet down there. You can't touch anything, and so you kind of walk through it slowly. You're seeing these familiar objects, sports equipment or shoes or, you know, various things. And it feels kind of sacred. Hey, everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today, we're taking a peek into the historic Panama Hotel, the heart of Seattle's Japantown. And we're unearthing some of the treasures left in its basement for decades, ever since the tragedy of Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. If you haven't already seen the video, we suggest you stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. I'm standing at an intersection, which is an epicenter of Seattle history. It's the corner of South Main Street and Sixth Avenue South in the Chinatown International Historic District. The neighborhood has also been portrayed in the best-selling novel, Hotel at the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, by novelist Jamie Ford, that captures life in the Nihon Machi, also called Japantown, which was centered in this place. And the hotel referred to, it's still here, a resilient survivor of an event that tore this community apart 80 years ago. Yeah, I wonder if you could bring us to the Panama Hotel. When you went there recently to uh, do the video shoot, I mean, was that the first time you had been there or have, have you been there in the past? I'd been there before. Allied Arts used to have some meetings there. So, yes, I'd been there before. And that was when I saw the hole in the floor. Mm. So one of the things at the Panama Hotel is that the owner put a plexiglass panel in the floor of what's now the sort of tea room, coffee house portion of the hotel. And you look down through this thing and there is a collection of baggage, suitcases, trunks, other objects. And these were items that were left in the hotel by people who were incarcerated, Japanese-Americans who were incarcerated during World War II, as most Japanese on the West Coast were. And these are bags that were never claimed. In other words, the people who left to go to these prison camps, some of them never came back or never wanted to reconnect with their possessions. And it was very moving to me. I was really struck at the time you know, felt like, oh, this is really amazing that this exists. And this is an amazing piece of our history right here. And just quietly (laughs) sitting here in this hotel. The hotel in question is the Panama Hotel and Tea Room. It was an SRO, a single room occupancy hotel. This was a form of dense, affordable housing that boomed during the early years of the 20th century and served transient workers and immigrants. They were often lively communities of permanent residents housed in humble accommodations, but had everything they needed within a couple of blocks. Sounds like an urban ideal. I think I looked up and the rate for staying in the Panama Hotel, you know, was like 35 cents. I mean, it was 
35 cents a night, huh? Yeah. You know, wow. it's one of the few surviving. I mean, there are other places like that in Seattle, but there used to be a lot of them. They were built at the turn of the century to house this booming, growing city. So you have these individual rooms with the bathroom down the hall. You know, they were inexpensive places for folks to live. So, it, you know, it amazed me that it's still running as a hotel today and an Airbnb. It's a, you know, they still have coffee and tea and and, you know, it's a very vibrant place, people coming and going. And, you know, word has gotten out about the plexiglass floor. So people, there are people who are coming just to just to see that. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. You know, this was really the heart of Japantown. You know, yeah. it was like an anchor of this large community that existed there. I was told that it was built for the Japanese market. It was mm -hmm. designed by a Japanese architect owned by uh, Japanese people, or at least owned by a group that they were part of because there were laws that said that Japanese at some point could not own or lease property. And these were mm -hmm. part of a whole series of anti-Asian legislation, both nationally and locally, that it goes back to the 19th century, you know, wanting to exclude immigrants, particularly Asian immigrants, from settling here and staying here, living here. This was sort of a, you know, huge issue on the West Coast, right? Um, you know, from early times on. But one of the major features of the hotel was that it had a public bathhouse. Right. So it had a Japanese bathhouse for men and women. And that didn't close, I believe, until the early 1960s. You know, when um, Japanese folks would get off the steamship that would come into, you know, port, they'd walk up the hill and the first place they'd go to was uh, the public bathhouse. And that was really a community gathering place, you know, along with restaurants where people, you know, were eating and drinking and, uh, and whatnot. The bathhouse, it was for men and women. It's still there. It's one yeah. of the kind of artifacts. It no longer functions as a bathhouse, but the fact that it even exists, they're very rare. I think there's maybe one in California that also is still there. So it's just very unique in so many respects. It's unique in its historical aspects. It's unique in its uh, the cultural aspects. It's unique that it's still going. Right. And it's unique that it's preserved this piece of history that was such a traumatic event in the life of our country, but mainly in the life of people of Japanese descent and, and Japanese Americans during World War II. The hotel managed through the boom years and then the Great Depression of the 1930s, which was a challenge. But the worst happened following the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. The following February, Franklin Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, which initiated the incarceration of people of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast. Within months, some 120,000 people, most of them U.S. citizens, were shipped to camps and relocation centers like the Orwellian-named Camp Harmony in Puyallup. Most long-term camps were in the Western interior. Some 8,000 residents of Japantown were ordered to leave with what they could carry, vacating homes, closing their businesses, and losing their livelihoods. The incarceration turned people into refugees in their own country. I'm just curious, because I haven't explored this myself, but if, if you're just a visitor to the hotel, can you go 
into the basement and take a closer look at those objects? Yeah, I think you have to make an arrangement with uh, with the owner. So it's not the kind of thing where you know anyone can do, but we were given access to it, and so we could you know go down these very narrow stairs into the sort of bowels of the hotel. Oh. And I think first of all, I would say probably any, anything that ever went into that basement, you know, much of it's still there. So. Uh-huh. The things that were connected to the incarceration aside, there are old hotel furniture down there. There's uh, carpeting, rolls of, you know, it's obviously a, a utility space, a space, uh, you know, where, where it's sort of an attic for the hotel as well. Mm-hmm. One of the sections near the bathhouse, there's a sign. It's a fallout shelter. You know, it's a Cold War, 1960s. The sign is still there. And not only is the sign still there, but all these drums of water and special, you know, post-apocalyptic crackers (laughs) that you can eat, you know, are still there. And so, you know, they, they stocked a fallout shelter, the government did, but way back when. And that stuff is still there. And that, I mean, just that alone is like a collector's item of of some kind. Yeah, because most most fallout shelters, very few of them exist anymore. That sort of added a whole other dimension. It gave this sense of timelessness that added to the reason we were there, which was to look at the bathhouse and to look at these objects that had been left behind from this incredibly traumatic tragedy from... 80 years ago. Yeah. So it sounds like there are layers of history starting, you know, around the 30s and 40s and then kind of going on. So you have World War II, Japanese incarceration, and you have the Cold War and the creation of all these fallout shelters in Seattle. It sounds like there were a lot of new homes being built that would advertise. um, Bomb shelters. (laughs) Like, don't worry, we got a bomb shelter built in. Yeah. And also, I guess, yeah, the government was sort of locating, I guess, uh, any potential basements. I, I don't know if you know why the Panama Hotel was selected for that, but maybe because it ha- had a viable enough basement because of the bathhouse or something? Yeah, I suspect it was probably they had a nice deep basement. It's built on a slope. Mm-hmm. So the basement is kind of down the hillside. And I think one thing it speaks to, which is interesting to me, is the kind of Pacific history. I mean, you know, Seattle was a city that was connected to Japan. It was the American port that was closest to Japan mm-hmm. for many, many years. You could you could get there quicker than you could from San Francisco. It was a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. We had a large Asian community and a growing Japanese community in the early part of the 20th century. You know, one one question that I've heard well, I think you asked me this, but I've heard it from other people, is why do they call it the Panama Hotel? Yeah. It's like, you know, that's so Central American. Well, think the Panama Canal. Yeah. When the hotel was built was while the Panama Canal was being built. Everybody knew that the Panama Canal was going to be life changer for people on the Pacific coast. This was going to connect Atlantic and Pacific. It was going to um, promote trade. And it was, yeah, a linking, a sort of encircling of the world. You have the colonizers from Europe coming west and wanting to get to the east. 
mm-hmm. not having an easy way to do it, the Panama Canal was going to be that. And at the same time, Seattle was building its own canal. Right around the time the Panama Canal was opening, we were building a canal, the Ship Canal, the Lake Washington Ship Canal that connected Lake Washington, Lake Union to Puget Sound and to the yeah. Pacific Ocean. I don't know this for sure, but my sense is, on the West Coast anyway, Panama was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was named just to kind of as an acknowledgement of these global and Pacific connections. Um, so I think it makes sense in that context. Being in the basement of the Panama Hotel, is there anything that you remember seeing when you were there more recently for the video shoot that sticks in your mind? An object or a set of objects that felt intriguing or surprising or memorable in some way? Oddly, there was a folded flannel shirt. Somebody neatly folded this shirt and put it in the luggage. It's visible. It's in a box with some other clothes and it's sitting on top. You know, here you can't touch anything. And the contents are just really mundane for the most part. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, an American flag. And, of Mm -hmm. course, that takes on a poignancy given what happened with the incarceration and underscores this idea that loyal Americans were being put into what were effectively concentration camps Mm -hmm. just because of their ethnicity. Yeah. Because of their race. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the flag, there's always that issue between what the, what the flag represents and to whom mm-hmm. it represents that, you know. So it's, yeah. it's, there's yeah. that note of kind of poignancy and irony there. Yeah. And there was a, there's a pillow from, a souvenir pillow from Mount Rainier. Oh, wow. You know. Huh. And so, you know, you want, I mean, people who were sent to these camps could basically only take what they could carry. And this is really striking, too, when you see the the movies, the films that were taken at the time of people being herded and, you know, they've got a suitcase and they're carrying something in their arms. You know, it didn't matter if you owned a business. It didn't man- matter if you lived in a mansion. It didn't matter, yeah. you know, who you were. You could carry very little. And people who lived in the hotel and even people who lived in other places in Japantown turned to the hotel as a place where uh, the owner agreed to store the stuff until they came back. And he, too, went off to camp. Right. And white people came in and managed the hotel during that interim period. He had to fight to get the hotel back when he came. They didn't really want to leave. And this, yeah, that's, huh. of course, is part of the experience, too, is that it could be that some of the people who didn't come back for their goods weren't able to because they were being further excluded. I mean, this is one of the one of the parts of the story that we don't hear a lot about. Before World War II, there were organized groups to prevent the Japanese from owning anything and from living in areas, particularly, you know, Japanese farmers, once they were sent off to camp, many of them had a devil of a time coming back to places like the Auburn Valley or whatever, where there were organized groups after the war Mm. who were refusing to let the Japanese resettle. So many Mm. people coming back couldn't go home. 
they ended up having to find another home or go somewhere else. So it's very easy to see how people would not have attachment to these objects or not want to ever see them again. You know, mm -hmm. they wanted to start fresh. There were people that died in camp and uh, were buried there. The owner of the hotel did try to repatriate everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and he repatriated quite a bit, apparently, but there was a lot left over, which is what you find there now. We'll be right back. The Port of Seattle has a mission to be the greenest and most energy efficient port in North America. How? Here's one recent example. The port partnered with the community to construct the Duwamish River People's Park and Shoreline Habitat, the largest habitat restoration project on the Duwamish River in a generation, creating 14 acres of critical fish and wildlife habitat while providing public shoreline access. This large-scale restoration project supports recovery of the endangered southern resident orca population by significantly increasing habitat critical to abundance and health of Chinook salmon. For more on this project and the port, go to portseattle.org. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. first chunk of the 20th century, there were laws and organized groups trying as hard as they could to disenfranchise this community. So prior to World War II, the Japanese-American community in Seattle, for example, was not able to own property, and they were effectively redlined, as were other groups of color, right, in Seattle? Yeah. Um, yes. The answer to that is, is yes. There were places where they could live and, and could not live. I mean, most, if you look at the covenants that were prevalent mm -hmm. in the early 20th century and particularly in the 1920s, so in, in housing developments that became neighborhoods and, and whatnot, you know, many of them don't just exclude black people, but Jews and Asians of all kinds. Prejudice was pretty broad. Mm -hmm. And so obviously developing communities that have ethnic support <laughs> mm -hmm. was really important. Having someone build a hotel specifically for you was pretty cool, pretty good. You know, that, yeah. was, that was good. And you weren't going to get that in any other part of the city. Right. And there was, uh, you know, kind of a lot of crossover between groups both before and after the war in terms of where they sought entertainment. So, you know, when you get into the Jackson Street jazz era, mm -hmm. you know, if you take Jackson Street, it was it was basically following what had been the, the vice district 
into what, what we now call Chinatown International District all the way to the central area. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the key places, uh, which is in what is now Little Saigon, it was at 12th and Jackson, which was the Black and Tan Club. Mm. Black and Tan Club was the really the one of the only one of a few entertainment venues in Seattle where all the races could get together and socialize as equals. And there were these clubs and speakeasies and whatnot existed throughout since the Jackson Street scene, which included Chinatown, Japantown. And there were places where Asians and black people and white people could get together kind of on the QT. Do you know when those covenants were officially overturned in Seattle? Like, I, you know, for example, the owner of the Panama Hotel, uh, Mr. Hori, he eventually was able to own it? Yes. Yeah. yeah, right. So I can't speak to the specific Japanese law, but certainly by the 1940s, those restrictions were not being enforced. I mean, they were being enforced culturally, yeah. but okay. redlining still existed. You could still decide not to give people loans or not to sell houses to folks. So there was still a lot of that. But in terms of being able to ban people explicitly based on race, that was changing. Mm-hmm. You know, the way the owner, Yushitoro Oto, who had the hotel built, he was able to do it by, you know, they created a kind of corporation that that he was part of. So it was a kind of corporate ownership oh, or a collective ownership as opposed to him as an individual owning the oh. hotel. The architect, Saburo Osaza, he was actually not a Japanese-American. He was uh, a Japanese immigrant who came to Seattle. He was the first Asian architect in Seattle working. And then he actually moved back to Japan. He didn't stay in this country, but he, he moved back. And the Panama Hotel was one of his projects, probably his most famous project. Makes me feel really sad. I mean, when I think about it, when you're in the, that basement looking at those objects, I mean, does it feel, does it feel heavy? I guess, what is it like in the space itself? The impression that I came away with was how multi-layered it is. Yeah. Okay, you have a historic landmark structure. You have an operating hotel, Airbnb, and restaurant, coffee house, tea house. You have a place where people still come and socialize and have meetings or gatherings. It's kind of a museum of Japantown in the sense that the walls are covered with photographs from the community that people have donated or people have found and had blown up. And so you get to see what a, yeah, what a vibrant community it was over the years. And, you know, pictures of parades or people, uh, pictures of proprietors standing outside their shops. and, And then... You know, the basement is, <laughs> it's its a basement full of stuff, you know. Yeah. But when you know the story of this particular stuff, it itself has layers. There's the physical objects. There's why they're there, this um, traumatic event. One description of it is it's, it's this capturing of a moment in time like Pompeii, mm-hmm. this massive eruption. But we dig through the dust and you find this snapshot of a particular moment in Roman history. And so it has a little bit of that, you know, it has that sense of being a time capsule. You know, if you know why those objects are there and you know the trauma that that did to the community, and I think to America at large, it was, you know, 
it's something we still have not come to grips with. Why why did you and the team choose to make an episode of Mossbacks Northwest about the Panama Hotel at this time? Or what was the inspiration for this particular episode in season six of <laughs> Mossbacks yeah. Northwest? Well, I think the inspiration came, you know, sort of from a couple of a couple of directions. <laughs> when I pick subjects for Mossbacks Northwest, I often try to look for something that has a contemporary hook. Mm-hmm. So that there's something going on in the world that this connects to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I read that the Panama Hotel was up for landmark status and it was being considered a landmark, an official city landmark, and would get protections um, that come with that, that made me think, okay, well, here's something that's actually happened or ha- has happened in the process of happening, and that seemed important. And we've done that before in other episodes where we've looked at something that was sort of, we did the Kate and Revel's house last mm. season on right. Capitol Hill that had become a landmark and why it, that was significant. But the other thing was the 80th anniversary of mm. the executive mm-hmm. order and this feeling that it was really important to be able to talk about the World War II incarceration and and be part of that effort to help us all remember what happened, learn what happened, and um, talk about a place that that embodies that. Now, there are lots of places that do, but often they're far flung. You know, I've been to Manzanar in California, which is one of the one of the camps. Extremely powerful experience. The Sierras are on one side and the desert on the other, and it's very isolated. And as you drive up to it, you see guard towers, you know, it, it breaks any illusion you had that these were just, you know, these were just, you know, nice places for folks to live until the war was settled, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it's a prison right. camp. Right. Right. Yeah. So this was a way that there was something very tangible right here in the middle of a city, a city yeah. that enabled this, a city that supported this, right. you know, and a community that was so badly disrupted by it. Of course, the, the the traumas span the generations, so that hasn't gone away either. It's right. 80 years, but the reverberations. So that's why it just seemed like, well, this is a you know, this is a great time to to look at this history and get some cameras down there and share it with people because you know a lot of people don't know about it. They don't know about the Panama Hotel, and they don't know about the larger issues. I haven't thought about it much. And it's something, you know, it's something also that has, I think, a resonance throughout the Northwest, both because of our connection with Asia, with large Asian populations, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And we weren't the only ones with camps, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, Canada, British Columbia. So I just Mm -hmm. think, you know, it's something that would speak to our broader Northwest audience as well. The war era assemblage is a dreamscape, dark and still, piled with unclaimed suitcases, satchels, boxes, flannel shirts folded and ready to wear, coffee tins, tools, furniture. Many are tagged, cataloged by scholars. 
A report from 1996 treating the basement repository like an archaeological dig talked about some of the artifacts excavated in the basement. Golf clubs and ice skates, flags, wartime bulletins on the latest victories in the South Pacific, a February 1942 Reader's Digest, perhaps unread, issued the same month as Executive Order 9066. A scholar has called it a treasure chest of forgetting. Today, it's an opportunity for all of us to do some long overdue remembering. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Jonah Cohen, and the executive producer is Mark Bumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its sixth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through mid-November. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We want to know what you think. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers even greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.